Hello, everybody. My name is Marcus Speller, and welcome to the Barcelona Legacy Podcast. This is the second of a six-part series to coincide with the release of The Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. It's written by one of our panellists, Jonathan Wilson, who writes for The Guardian, Sports Illustrated and World Soccer, and it's out this month in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. We're also joined today by Gabriel Marcotti, who is senior writer at ESPN and also writes for The Times. So, Jonathan, in this podcast series, we're going to be looking at six matches that define this footballing evolution from Christ Barcelona to Guardiola's Manchester City. Last episode, we began this story with this year's match between Liverpool and Manchester City. But in this episode, we're travelling all the way back to 1994, 24 years ago, to the Champions League final between Barcelona and AC Milan in Athens. It seems like a good place to start, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, if you like, this is the beginning of the end of the beginning of the story. So Cruyff <laughs> has, has returned, having been a great player of Barcelona, he's returned as a coach. And Barcelona at this time, are a big club and not a successful club. They won the league with Cruyff as a player in 74. They won the league under Terry Venables in 85. And and pretty much that's it. They, they've, you know, those two league titles and a huge ocean of failure. Cruyff comes in, replaces Luis Aragonas in, in um, 87. And he then builds this great side that goes on, wins the uh, Spanish league four times in a row, wins Barcelona's first European Cup in 1992. They get to the final again in 94. And everybody expects them to win. It's a it's a Milan side that has got a lot of injuries, a lot of absentees. They're they're expected, you know, they themselves now say they're a little bit complacent and they get hammered 4 0. And Cruyff on the bus back to the hotel in Athens starts sacking players and his attempts to rebuild the club fail. And he leaves in, in ninety six. In comes Bobby Robson, who's then replaced a year later by Louis Van Gaal. And thus we move into the next phase. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Gab, going into that game, it seems ridiculous now in hindsight. Macy Milan beat them 4-0. But Barcelona were favourites because of all those reasons Jonathan just said, that Cruyff had built them up into the Barcelona, which really we know now, I suppose. Yeah, and which for a period wasn't the Barcelona we know now, of course, if you look, look back over the, the, the mm-hmm. last 25 years. But I think they were favourites, as Jonathan said. Uh, Milan had a lot of injuries. Neither team, it's, it's pretty remarkable if you go and you look at the Champions League format from that season. You know, today we're so accustomed to to clubs just sort of steamrolling everybody. If you go back, there were a lot of really, really close matches. Um, you know, Barcelona needed to win away in their last match day to Monaco uh, to, to to advance. Uh, Milan actually only won two of six games. It's probably worth saying what the format was. There was two groups mm-hmm. of four going into semifinals, which were only one leg. If you topped your group, you were at home in the semifinal. So the, the the group stages were difficult for both teams. And different to what we see now, yeah. Yeah, and even if you look at like the points totals with which Barcelona won the league, you know, when we talk about great teams from the past, you don't have the competitive imbalance yet today. So things were always a lot closer. So again, with hindsight, it is kind of remarkable to me, at least, that they were such overwhelming favorites in the final against you know a, a, a Milan side who had been dominating Serie A at the time that um, on, under Capello at a time that. Serie A was clearly the, the best league in the world. And by some margin, uh, a team that had had, obviously, a lot of European success before. I mean, Capello's spoken about this. I, I wrote in an authorized biography of him, but, you know, he was pretty clear at the time. He really, and I'm sure we'll get into how we approach the game, but one thing that really rankled uh, Milan 
was Cruyff had his picture taken with the European Cup uh, before the final. <laughs> oh, that's, that's big licks, isn't it? it? Yeah. I mean, if you go in with this kind of, you know, Billy Big Bollocks thing, mm. it can come back to bite you. And and they use that. They use that because in some ways it is in keeping with the narrative of Cruyff, right? The, the guy who he reinvents football, he's the best player in the world in his era, and then they go and they throw away a World Cup final, basically, or at least Jonathan may dispute this, but the narrative is they threw that final away in 1974 against the hated Germans. Why? Simply because they got too big for their britches. They didn't have the humility. The emotions got in the way. Yeah, and, you know, and the Gabella was able to, to, to spin that narrative that the greats, outwardly, they may be arrogant and blustery, but to be there, they have to have a humility. They have to have a work ethic. And, you know, he, he told them, whether it's true or not, that Milan had that and Barcelona did not. But I, I think there's a, there's a sense as well, if you, if you look at what happened in the previous four years, well, you know, and Gab's absolutely right, that Milan dominating Serie A, which was, yeah, in, terms of, in terms of money, in terms of the players they had there, was the best league. One of the 58 I, league games unbeaten, just to, to, to reinforce that dominance, yeah. you know, an entire and this was sort of, you know, the, the Saki's team, uh, which had won the European Cup in, in 89 and 19, which until this Real Madrid was, was the last team to successfully defend the title, it had sort of been refreshed and Capello had taken on and, and, and perhaps reached a, a new level. Um, but I think it was it was understandable that Barcelona had begun to believe Alan Myth. That Cruyff had come in, you were preaching this philosophy and people had been sceptical at first, but it had been incredibly successful and everything went his way. So those four league titles, two of them were won on the final day of the season because Real Madrid lost away at Tenerife, which is... <laughs> Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And and Tenerife managed by Jorge Valdano, one of Madrid's greatest players of, of the eighties. So there there was this sort of sense of Cruyff as somebody who, you know, if he touches it, it will turn to gold. And and so I you know, I think that built into this sense of, well, of course we'll win it again. And then they run into Capello and, and Italian realism. And and I think in some ways there were warning signs were already there because if you look at um I think it was the previous year, you know, losing to Seska Moscow in a game they're tuned all up at home at the camp now everybody's flying and then they end up losing 3-2 mm. you know and this kind of stuff isn't supposed to happen so I think there was still a sense that I think certain certain people certain traditionalists would look at it and say you know what yeah you may be flashy but you win titles because Real Madrid throw it away and too often you don't close out games the way you should and, and what's, what's fascinating about this, given what we talked about in, in the in the first podcast in this series, and Manchester City's capacity or, or Guardiola's capacity to concede bursts of goals, you know, in, in you know, three goals in twenty minutes, that Seska game, they let in three goals in in seventeen minutes. Hmm. Um, in this final, it's they an let eerie in, parallel, isn't it? They let in four goals in what just over half an hour. I mean, yeah, there's something that we, we perhaps should say how this game went, um, but. The, the fourth goal. Albertini, Desai, solo! Goal! Sono quattro! Sono quattro! Il Milan travolge letteralmente il Barcellona di Cruyff. 4 a 0. Il calcio. Desai's goal, uh, where he wins the ball in midfield, charges forward, plays a quick one two on the edge of the box, curls it in. You watch that and you think, oh, well, yeah, that's an understandable goal in the 85th minute of the game when. Yeah, one team's exhausted. 
That's 58 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, the game was done to to an, you know, completely done. And I think if Milan had really wanted to, they could have gone on and won that mm-hmm. comfortably more. So anyway, the, the way the game went, um, it's sort of pretty even first 20 minutes, 20 second minute, long clearance um, from, from Rossi, the, the Milan goalkeeper. Extraordinary moment of Nadal. It takes, takes his, it balls miles in the air, takes it down his chest. Quite beautifully, I have yeah. to say. I mean, he's not really under pressure, but takes it down his chest. <laughs> you sort of think, <laughs> almost any other team at that time would just headed it straight back where it come yeah. from. Tries to play it out. It's one in midfield. Um, there's a quick ball through from, I think it's Albertini plays it to Savicevic. Yeah. Savicevic breaks right. on the right side of the box. And then something slightly strange happens. I still can't quite work it out. But anyway, he ends up sort of... I think he tries to shoot and scuffs it. Yeah, but it's a slightly weird chipped cross. Mm-hmm. It goes over to Bizarreta, the Barca keeper, and Masara's there to, to turn it in. Sorry, we're, we're talking about Savicevic here. I'm, I'm the genius. <laughs> Any other player on the pitch, you could say he scuffs it. But there's I think something he just decided really to hit the ball in an true. unorthodox way. I should apologise. Maybe. There's something very, very strange about his contact on that. But may, maybe we'll, he's got enough credit. We give we'll him. let the listeners decide on that yeah. one. And then, um, first off, injury time. Donadoni gets cleared down the left. Takes on uh, Ferrer, beats him quite comfortably, cuts the ball back. Mazzaro pings it in his second and, of the and game. And that was perhaps the only sort of traditional goal that wasn't, I, I don't want to say it, was, it wasn't avoidable, because again, you know, Donadoni, a great dribbler and whatever, you would expect a manager who's a little more reactive, less proactive, would say, you know what, I don't like Ferrer one-on-one in the open field over on the flank against Donadoni. Somebody needs to come across and help. And if you see, he beats Ferrer, and then he's got an hour to kind of come yeah. in. Nobody comes close to him. Masara unmarked, who's already scored. Yeah. Yeah. I think, although, I point, it's funny because I pointed this out to Capello about, well, Masaro, that he was wide open, you know, bad defending. He says, no, Masaro had made an intelligent movement, which <laughs> only Capello saw. But, <laughs> but, but still, you know, that, that was a good build up goal against yeah. a, a defense that was present, at least in body, if not mind. And you're absolutely right. The other three goals are all quick transitions. Barca lose the ball. And bang, Milan pounce on them in a way that feels very, very modern. Yeah, and I guess that's what what Saki and, and then Capello brought to brought to Italian football Although, that style of football. This is this is the interesting thing, though. That was not probably that was probably not the way Milan would have played had they been fully fit. Um, obviously, in that game, uh, you know Milan stellar defense that everybody knows about, but. Um, both center backs were out. Mm. Uh, the Beresi Costa Curta. Beresi Costa Curta out. Uh, so they. Van Basten wasn't there, right? And Lentini. So four big players mm. not there, plus and, three players you can't play because of the foreigners' rules. So they, they didn't have Adachoy, they didn't have Papa, and they didn't have Brian Laudrup. And, and at the back, what they did was they moved Paolo Maldini to uh, the center back alongside Filippo Galli, who couldn't have been that old back then, but in my mind was always old. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then they had, uh, uh, and, and they brought in a young man named Christian Panucci to play uh, uh, to play fullback on one side, and you had Tassotti on the other. So I think the idea was because he had this center back pairing that you know hadn't really played together much at all. Um, I think he said, "Right, you know what? Let's go and let's actually press them 
higher up the pitch. Let's go back to the way the Sakiera was. Because if you look at that Capello team, he, he takes over, um, you know, he wins the title in 91-92, and that's still a super prolific, super attacking team. But then after that, the goals really, really dry up. This becomes one of those sort of efficient 1-0 teams. Um, was it 36 goals in 34 games they scored? Something like that? That was... I don't know if it was that year. Okay, or, or, but it was or around that before. time, yeah. You know, but, but, in, in this group stage, they drew three of the games nil-nil. Yeah. So they were completely capable of shutting shutting games out if they wanted to. That was that was how they approached it. And I think that's how they would have approached the final. Um, and also, look, if you're going to press, do you really want Savicevic to be the guy pressing <laughs> high? You know? Well, and Boban. And <laughs> yeah, although Boban then was... He would dispute that. Were, were, he, were he with us right now, the uh, uh, Deputy Secretary General of FIFA would say, actually, Jonathan, you're giving me a hard time about this. Because... I have absolutely no doubt he would say that. But were they surprised then, Milan, in that final? You know, when you spoke to Capello and, and others. Were they just surprised at how perhaps, I don't know, I don't want to say soft at the core. That's not the right thing. But, you know, the three, three of those four goals, as we say, there's, there's press. Well, should we, should we, maybe should we describe the third goal? Nadal. There's a sort of long ball over the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Nadal has a ball in the left-back area for Barca and just gives it away to Savicevic. He then clips this beautiful finish mm. from sort of the the corner of the box. It's a great goal. Yeah, just a, I mean, I'd say clips. It's sort of a... It's a lob. Ball's bouncing, so it's a lob, yeah. He meant it's that It's a sort one. of curling, <laughs> curling, beautifully flighted lob over Zubizaveta into the far corner. And that's that's game over. Any yeah. thought of a Barcelona comeback is, he, is finished. He hits it also with a certain type of spin, where even though the ball... It's one of those lobs where the ball obviously goes way up over Zubizaveta's head, but it does so at pace. If you look, it's not one of those lobs where he just hits it up mm. and it kind of floats over him and floats down. It's just a, a genius goal from mm. from a genius player. <laughs> so so with that in mind, and then obviously Desai then kind of wraps it up, gets the fourth on fifty eight minutes, as Jonathan already said. But w- w- were Milan sort of surprised at at how straightforward some of those goals were, and how straightforward this this great team were, at just giving the the ball away and uh, and Milan pouncing. The way a lot of teams played Barcelona was obviously to try to congest the space so that Romario and Stoichkov couldn't couldn't hurt you. And they would they would sit further back, and I think there's no question that's what Cruyff expected. I, I really think they weren't used to it, and you know, Nadal and Kuman, great defenders, but neither one particularly quick or or even agile. Well, they're great on the front foot. Yeah, I I've always had this thing about Kuman. People forget Kuman was incredibly slow. I I, I don't know that. And again, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But if I have this guy who really cannot run, and he couldn't run when he was young either, playing center back, it seems like an it seems bizarre in the current game that we would have that because no matter how well you read the game, if you play on a team that sends so many guys forward and that effectively is defending with what Ferrer, Nadal, and and Kuman between them, and there's no help, he's going to be out in space all the time. So again, hindsight being twenty twenty, what do you do? You send people and, and and you attack him, and and he's going to have to foul. Yeah, um, I mean, there's um, when Kuman was was at Ajax in the, in the eighties. There's a there's a remarkable interview he gives when he was basically complaining he wasn't used enough at Libero, you know, this early in his career, and he you know, 
the the interviewer sort of points out, well, yeah, but in this game, this this went pretty badly wrong, and it's exactly this this point that he had no pace, and his answer was. What can I do? I had Jan Mulvey in front of me. You tried defending Jan Mulvey in front of me. So, yeah, but, but you are Jan Mulvey. You're the same. Like you, you're probably a better passer, probably a better player. But the issue of lack of mobility, lack of pace, is identical. Mm. So you need somebody quick alongside him. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the, the nature of Cruyff's team building, I think, occasionally maybe didn't quite allow that. Well, it is and, I mean, he played Koeman and Guardiola together. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as a, in a sort of 3-4-3, three, three, so Guardiola's a deep midfielder with Koeman behind. But, I mean... There's not much You're relying entirely on positional sense there. You're not relying on any of the sort of traditional attributes of defending. Well, that's why I think it's fascinating when you look at the back lines of both of those sides. You know, now obviously Milan had injuries to two of the best defenders, one certainly ever, and, and one without a doubt of his generation in in Baresi and Costa Curta. But Milan, more of a, for want of a better word, traditional back four, whereas Barcelona had. The, the, you know the defence you've already described. The difference. Well, they did have Nadal, though, so there was sort of a, a proper four, but, but sure. still, Koeman obviously not a uh-huh. not a classical centre back. That, that but the, the difference between those two defensive lines and how football has been inspired by both, but certainly more so by that back four in subsequent years, is is quite remarkable, really. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interesting, you're watching the the you know the highlights of the game again. Because yeah, you know it sort of exists in the back of your memory, and you watch it again, you sort of see things that perhaps you didn't see at the time, or that you've misremembered, and you you realise this is actually this is Klopp against Guardiola. It's the same principle mm. that one team pushes out the pitch, is incredibly quick, is incredibly aggressive, and okay, that mightn't have been the way they played week to week, but it's the way they played. It's in the this way game. they chose to play in it, and it, it exposed game. it exposed that 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 Cruyffian style. So actually, the the lessons were all there in '94. It's just we forgot about them for twenty uh, years. Yeah, that's and, right. And I think. It, it's interesting because I put the sticker pad though, and he wouldn't, you know, he kind of, as he often does, he just starts talking over you and talking about something else. Um, <laughs> but people around him have said they would have, had they had everybody fit, they would have played that game, that game differently. So in other words, you know, when you make the parallel with, with Liverpool, this is a team that that's used to, to playing with that press and um, they, you know, they live for it. You know, you, it's very much a coordinated press. It's not just a bunch of guys running out, you know, trying to hunt down the um, the, the opposing players. Um, in this game, me and I were not used to it. So what he was able to rely on was a guy like Masato, who, you know, was, was quick and he was one of those annoying strikers. And he was very much a sort of a, a blue-collar, hard-hat worker bee of, of a forward. So you could get him to do that. You had Albertini, who was maybe not the greatest athlete in the world, but certainly could definitely hold his own, cover a lot of ground. Super intelligent. You had Boban, who we may disagree about his attitudes, but by this point, Boban also had realized that, you know what, I'm not Mr. Number 10, not on this team. If I'm going to play, I need to go and fit into what the manager wants me to do. He's so he his... sort of played in a, a tucked-in right-sided role, didn't he? Was... Yeah, but, you know, he... Originally, he saw himself as like... Sort yeah, in of, Croatia, he was a classic 10. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he adapted himself to that. Capello told him, you know, use your bodies, use your size, use your meanness, uh, pay attention to where your teammates are, otherwise you're never going to play. When Boban came in, he may have been a star in Croatia, but he was kind of number five or number six among Milan's foreigners. You know, he really played, him, played his way in. Um, you had Donadoni, another guy, very tactically intelligent, but also... You know, a skilled player who also had the work ethic, and you had Desailly, who, again, we, we remember him late on as sort of this this big rock of a defender. Back then, he was a guy who was 
who was all over the pitch. I mean, he was Patrick Vieira and Golo Kante rolled into one. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what enabled them to do it. He realized in the build-up to this game that, you know what, I can get these guys and they will listen to me and they have the work ethic and they have the athleticism. Again, Savicevic more of a question mark. <laughs> but if it's down to being sneaky, Savicevic could be sneaky with the best of them and and, and try to, you know, go try to nick a ball away. Mm. And you know, I think back, I think back to a guy like, especially the the third goal, Jonathan, you described, the one where Savicevic steals the ball from from Nadal. I can only put that down to enormous arrogance on Nadal's part, not because he's an arrogant guy, but because... They just weren't used to people pushing that high up the pitch. And also because I think Cruyff in the build-up says, oh, you're Nadal, you know, you're Beckenbauer. Yeah, sure, you can go ahead and do this. Don't worry, he's right there, but... You know, if he puts a leg up, don't worry. You're just going to sombrero it over his head. And he couldn't. He but couldn't uh, do it. But I think this is an interesting point that sort of yeah. is relevant to the modern age as well. That basically, if you're playing against um, a team that plays in that Cryfian way, there are two ways of doing it. You either sit very deep and you hope that, okay, you're going to give them 10, 12 shots. You hope none of them go in and you, you try and survive and maybe nick something on the break, which you know, Klopp said is like, you know, like trying to win the lottery. Or you push high at the pitch and you try and win the ball high and you try and unsettle them. Mm. But there's a huge risk there because then there's loads of space in you behind. Just play you. through you, yeah. And that uh, was... But you have to pick one of those two. And I, you know, and you know, we we come on. I think we're going to come on to talk about this when we when we do the 2009 Champions League final about how Manchester United in that game against Guardiola's Barcelona was sort of caught between two stools. Didn't know what to do. That that mm. their entire mental conditioning did not allow them to have 40 percent of the ball. They didn't understand that. Whereas now we're quite happy with have have 30 percent. Or you do the opposite and you, you press out the pitch and take the risk as, as Milan did. Sure. And in that final, um, we saw two great sides and two contrasting styles as mapped out, of course. But with obviously Cruyff's team, they were they were winning trophies and so on. And we talked about the arrogance and uh, and the confidence that they had. But it was founded on those Cruyffian principles and it was founded on playing it out the back and, and so on and so forth. Now, that Milan side, we, we think of a back four, very solid, you know, great players. Uh, it, sort of a 4-4-2 in layman's terms where you can you can argue that the toss there. Uh, Desai is perhaps a sort of a holding midfielder. Yeah, it's I a bit more, it's a 4-4-2, a bit more traditional, I suppose. But that, but that uh, Barcelona formation and their style that Cruyff really brought to the... To the to the masses in in Barcelona was quite innovative, I suppose at the, at the time. Would you say? Jonathan? Oh, enormously so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think his Ajax played played like that. But you know, he, he took over from Luis Aragonés, who who we remember his Spain side uh, year two thousand and eight, uh, where he you know he he did sort of practice the Barcelona principles up to a point. But there was a real sort of grittiness and and, and pragmatism about Aragonés. And Aragonas had replaced Terry Venables. Now, okay, Terry Venables in English terms was progressive. You know, he'd come through um, at, at Tottenham. He played with Bill Nicholson, who played alongside Vic Buckingham back at Tottenham under Peter McWilliam, and that's significant because Buckingham then goes to Ajax and actually is a man who gives Cruyff his debut. Uh, who's then replaced by Michaels. Buckingham goes to Barcelona and is replaced again by Michaels. So there is sort of a, a tie up there, but yeah. A, Guardiola arriving and saying, "No, no, no, we we have to go back to what we were doing when I was here as a player in the seventies. That was that was a shock, and it took time. So Cruyff, not Guardiola. Sorry, sorry yeah, yeah. Cruyff. Uh, go, go back to what, what he was doing as a, as a player in the seventies. That was a shock, and it, you know it, it took time, and, and and players and fans you had to sort of accept that there was a process to go through. 
And in fact, if he hadn't won the, the cup, he, he, he may well have been sacked. That bought him an extra year and yeah, the league title follows. And then all the work he did in terms of um, developing La Masia, bringing players through, Guardiola among them, um, all that foundation really well, it hinges on if I hadn't won the cup that year, yeah, who, who knows if he'd been given more time. Mm. Uh, but the problem then is that this is, I think you see it with teams that it's easy to talk about teams aging and you sort of think of that being about sort of legs tiring and players not being able to run quite as hard. I think it's also a mental and emotional process. And I think maybe the complacency is an aspect of aging. Yeah, there is an element of yeah, the hunger's gone. And then you know, coming again for a second time is really, really difficult. And this is where, where Cruyff fails. And so on the bus back from the stadium, he basically tells Zubi Zavetta, Michael Laudrup, uh, Gokutseo and Salinas, they're never going to play for him again. The following uh, January, Romario leaves. And then the next summer, Eusebio Sakristan, Stoichkov, Kuman, and Bagiristan. Bagiristan, of course, who's now technical director at City. They all leave. So this huge, you know, an entire team's worth of players go in a year after this final. And the attempt to rebuild doesn't work. And he tries to bring in Poznetsky, tries to bring in Hadji, tries to bring in Popescu. None of them really settle. And that's what leads to Cruyff's dismissal pretty acrimoniously in, in, in 96. I look back to that and I'm struck by how little work off the ball Romario and Stoichkov do. Which is amazing given Cruyff's principles are to press. And it's, it's something you, know, you can almost see the decadence setting in in their but lack of work rate. Did they work more in previous years? I think That's they what must have done. See, I'm not sure. And again, I obviously I wrote about Capello and Milan in that period more than I did about the Dream Team, but I'm not sure that they did. Um, well, no, Troy specifically said of Stoichkov, what he brought was um, an element of the street, of you know, the mongrel, of the fight and the drive and the grit that he felt they'd been lacking. So he saw Stoichkov as being hard, and that involved working hard. But you know, it, it, when you when we were talking before about Ferrer having no support when Don Donny beats him, Stoichkov's the man who's playing on the right wing. It's yeah. it's either him or Amor has to get back. But Amor really should be picking up um, Masaro. That's you know that's Amor's zone. So it's it's precisely Stoichkov's failure to work back that leads to Don Donny getting the one on one against Ferrer. And and I don't know. I, I I think on the back of that, the great leap forward from you know Cruyff to Pep is that Pep, especially with his with his first Champions League winning team, he got the skilled players to buy into the the, the notion of of working from the front much more. I, I I know that in the narrative, and Pep's always humble and says it's all down to to cry. I certainly didn't. When you compare the way teams pressed, when when you know when you compare the way Saki's teams pressed to the way Barcelona pressed, it's, it's no yeah, it's, it's different a, level. No I think I think there's an issue of sort of sports science there as well that people can press for ninety minutes now. Whereas that, that was, you know, one of the reasons pressing develops in the 60s is that people are able to press for a long period, but it's not 90 minutes. And slowly as that improves and nutrition improves and understanding of diets improves and understanding of how you, you train to be able to have, make that series of short sprints over 90 minutes, pressing gets more and more and more intense, more relentless. And I, you know, I think you do see in this final the limitations of, 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 the, of, the, of the Cruyff way of doing it. Um, and yes, it's amazing to think. Cruyff was 47 this final. He only coached two more years. And mm. That was it. Do you think there was an element, specifically with regards to Romario, but I guess not just him, because he wasn't the only one, of 
obviously they were so confident, so complacent of maybe them, some of those guys looking ahead to to the summer. To the World and to, Cup. And, and to the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, quite possibly. I mean, obviously, Soyskov did go on to have a, have a brilliant World Cup as well in 94. So. As did Romario. As did Romario, yeah. And, you know, you watch him, he's just there's so much walking. And, and, and I don't know, I don't want to sound like, you know, there's old school, like, coaches who say, like, <laughs> oh, I want to see you work your socks off and whatever. And, you know, the argument with Romario was always that he's, oh, he's super efficient. You know, he walks because he has this sort of supernatural notion of knowing when to sprint so he can be fresh and whatever. But but Mina's back four are never under, they're never really an, under any kind of any kind of pressure. Um, and again, weirdly in that game, you could argue that, well, obviously Costa Curta and, um, and, uh, and Baresi being out, obviously a big blow it enabled you to have effectively um, what i thought was a much better ball playing center back in there in in Maldini, in Maldini yeah, be yeah. better on the ball and also panucci on the other flank and so you, you still had that outlook panucci also very good on the ball and what little press they did what i thought was fairly easily dealt with mm-hmm. and then throw in albertini coming back and then all of a sudden, you know, you could you were you felt pretty good about being able to play through whatever they whatever they provided you. Yeah, and I think this is actually a, a, a big difference between Cruyff and Van Hal. Even that Van Hal demanded his forwards worked in a way that Cruyff perhaps didn't quite. I mean, I know you know Gary Lineker you know, talks about the amount of work that he had to do as a forward in terms of closing the opposition down on on the wing as well. On, on, yeah, yeah. And, and being used on the wing, which you know he felt was Cruyff deliberately trying to push him out. Uh, and and eventually, you know, he he, he is pushed out. Um, but uh, you know, the 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 Cruyffian purists always say about Van Hal that his football was too conservative, it was too patient, it was too risk averse. But I think a part of that is that his forwards had to work incredibly hard. So you think of something like the Yari Lipmanen, who was Van Hal's great number ten at, at Ajax, great, you know, very skillful player, but incredibly hard working as well. And Van Hal would say he didn't care if his number nine scored goals or not. His job was actually just just to work with great space and to close the opposition down. And that, of course, is why Van Hal subsequently falls out with with Rivaldo at uh, at Barca Mm. uh, after he's replaced Bobby Robson, who's replaced Cruyff. Sure. And and, and just a final word, Jonathan, looking at Cruyff, the man himself, as you've already said, after the game, you know, sacks four players, and 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 as, as as Gavin yourself have said, going into the game quite arrogant. The um the characteristics and the and the kind of raw emotions of Johan Cruyff cannot ever be separated from the footballing coach, can they? No, and you know, we the, the nature of this game means we've been quite critical of him, but he is a genius. Absolutely, he is the man who who essentially created what we understand as as top class modern football now. Uh, his work as a player at, Barcelona, at Ajax and Barcelona in the 70s and then as a, as a coach in the 80s and early 90s is probably the most influential post-Second World War spell of playing and coaching at two clubs that, that there's ever been. And I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> um, thank you very much, everybody, for listening uh, to the second of a six-part series to coincide with the release of The Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. And, of course, the book is written by Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan Gab, thank you very much and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time for part three.
It's all right, Luke. I know the World Cup's over for another four years. But don't worry, we've got all this to look forward to. Well, if you want any sort of basic mind game against Mark, you just don't shake his hand. Yeah, it's just be, out in the open. You'd have to be a brave man. I was going to say. <laughs> there was an interview with Sean Dyche. And have you heard how bad his voice has got now? It is getting worse. I thought to be honest, if someone's recently been kidnapped, they're probably not listening to the ramble. No. That's, that's no. Not the, please, well, unless they're being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> the Football Ramble, back for a new season, Monday, 6th of August. Dry your eyes, mate. <laughs>